Hey, Mark. Yes, Sally. What's your mum's maiden name? It's a bit of an odd question, but uh, okay, I'll, I'll follow along. Um, let's just go with uh, Rudiger. And uh, what about the name of your first pet, just out of curiosity? Just out of curiosity? I've got a feeling you're setting me up for something, <laughs> but okay, I'll, I'll bite. Uh, her name is Ruby. And uh, what about the name of your primary school? Just, I just want to know more about you, Mark. That's okay. it. All right. Okay. Um, I'll keep playing along just for the sake of this, uh, <laughs> sake of this, <laughs> this segment. Uh, it's um, Saint Bouvier's wow. College for the Gifted. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> <laughs> well, sucked in. Now I have all the information I need to hack into your financial accounts and steal your identity. The joke is on you, Sally, because there's nothing there. But interesting. Okay, interesting. Go on. <laughs> so all jokes aside, your personal information is basically all a hacker needs to target you in a scam or unlock your financial accounts or even steal your identity if they really wanted to, Mark. And because of the way that we use social media and I guess just exists so much online, this data can be spread far and wide thanks to our digital footprints that we're treading around. And it's really scary and it may sound far-fetched, but it's a serious problem that impacts thousands of Australians. Okay, Sally, you've got me scared enough to the point where I'm about to go off the grid. So thanks for that. Excellent. Today on Pocket Money, we're going to be exploring how these scams work, uh, the impacts they have on our lives, and more importantly, our finances. Okay, let's get into the story. Look, Sally, I've heard gasps from your, your desk this week, and I know that you're, you're scared about something. All right, so how big of a problem is all this stuff? Yeah, it's massive. According to a recent report from the ACCC, Australians lost half a billion dollars to scams last year. And this is a massive jump of $149 million compared to what was lost in 2017. So it doesn't look like it's going to slow down anytime soon. To find out more, I called up the ACCC and spoke to the deputy chair. So here's a little clip from our chat. Hi, my name's Delia Rickard and I'm the Deputy Chair at the ACCC. And the ACCC, for those of you who don't know, is Australia's main competition and consumer protection regulator. So basically, the ACCC is Australia's competition and national consumer law champion. And they cover everything from consumer complaints and card surcharges to the NBN, but they also have a service called ScamWatch. Uh, and you can report a scam there, learn how to protect yourself. And then also they have a massive list of all of the current scams going around, which is a really helpful resource to see what's out there. One of the things we do is run a website called ScamWatch where people can report the scams that have affected them. And it has to be said, I'm a little bit obsessed by these scammers and wanting to stop them because they are absolutely destroying lives. They managed to get at least about half a billion dollars from Australians last year. And we think the real figure is much, much higher than that. Doing anything we can to stop the scammers succeeding is part of our mission. Yeah, wow. And it seems like scams can come in all shapes and forms. Uh, so, you know, from online dating scams to investment scams. Can you give us a bit of an overview of, uh, you know, the types of fraud that you do see coming through uh, that we should be aware of? 
Look, you can really divide scams into two batches. There are the scams where the scammer invests an awful lot of attention and detail into a particular individual. And those are the ones that they get the most money from. And the big ones there are really investment scams and dating and romance scams, which devastate people's lives, ruin them financially and emotionally. And then there are the more sort of mass marketed scams. Um, often done from call centres overseas, where they spray the scam all around the country. And even if only 1% of the population responds and, and becomes a victim to the scam, they still manage to make a lot of money. And those are much quicker for them. They don't have to invest as much individual time and attention in each victim. And would you say that one is more, uh, I guess, dangerous than the other or which one is impacting Australians more? All scams have a negative impact on people. The ones that reap the scammers the greatest amounts of money are investment scams and romance scams. People can lose their homes. They could be left financially destitute from these scams. However, you can't underestimate the impact of any types of scams on people. So we see lots of scams where the scammer is pretending to be something like the tax department, social security, Centrelink, and they usually hide behind trusted names. And they will manage to get, you know, often several things thousand dollars out of people, often, you know, pensioners, people who cannot afford to lose this kind of money. They are all dangerous and negative, but certainly the ones that are the most financially lucrative for scammers are investment in dating and romance. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, I am most surprised by the fact that the scams that make the most money for scammers are actually the investment and the romantic uh, ones, which is kind of sad as well. I guess the targeted ones where, you know, they're going after people who might be more vulnerable rather than the blanket ones seem to be more lucrative, which is, yeah, interesting, but yes, very, very sad. And according to that same ACCC report that I mentioned before, people aged 55 and above uh, suffered the greatest losses to scams last year. And I guess it could be maybe because older people might be less tech savvy. I don't want to discriminate, you know. Sally's throwing shade. (laughs) My nana's Facebook. Look, she's hip. She's with it. (laughs) But yeah, so it could be that sometimes these scams are really sophisticated. So maybe if you're not as tech savvy, I can see why you might fall victim to these. But then they're also targeted as individuals, for example, like Delia said, for investments. So maybe older people who have more money in, you know, superannuation, they're about to retire and they're thinking of different ways to spread out their investments. And then, you know, they're targeted by a scam artist and, you know, the offer is too good to be true and yeah unfortunately seems like they fall for it so we all know of the blanket scams that everyone seems to have some experience with or know someone who's had some experience with yeah I feel like every other day I'm clearing out like spam emails congratulations you've won blah 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 uh but Uh, Delia also mentioned that there was a massive uh, robocall scam that was going on last year. And basically, uh, it was an automated call where the supposed ATO were contacting you about unpaid tax bills. Uh, They had a warrant out for your arrest. And it was actually really terrifying. And I was one of the people to get that call. 
It is terrifying. And look, just like employers here want productivity gains, scammers are really, really tech savvy and they're always looking for ways that they could become more efficient in their scamming. So what they've done with this scam, which is a particularly nasty one, is they have a robocall, an automated call, which tells you either the Australian tax office or the police that you owe tax and there's a warrant out for your arrest and you must call this number. Now, a lot of people will recognise straight away that that's a scam, they know they don't owe money and just hang up. That way they weed out all the people who are unlikely to fall for the scam. The people who do call back probably haven't heard about the scam, maybe more susceptible, and then they have a real person talk to them and they're really intimidating, really scary. They tell you that you owe all this money, that you have to pay it for today. If you don't pay it today, there's a warrant out for your arrest and you'll be you know, arrested and taken off to prison. Sometimes they do it just by a regular bank transfer, but often these days they ask for payment in unusual forms, often gift cards. It was mainly iTunes gift cards, but people are beginning to be aware that scammers use iTunes gift cards. So they've moved on to Google Play cards, Steam cards. But you need to know that the ATO is never, ever going to ask or no government entity or legitimate business is going to ask to be paid in gift cards and just hang up because they really do scare you and they, they will keep you on the phone for long periods of time. So you don't have any time to sort of calm down and stop and think or talk to somebody else and say, you know, does this sound legitimate? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing. It seems like they're becoming more and more sophisticated. So I know in my case, I received the call and was like, "Mm, okay, and just uh, hung up and then immediately uh, contacted someone from the ATO to, first of all, just check (laughs) that I wasn't actually about to be carted off to jail and then uh, also to report it. Everyone should be like you. That's exactly the right thing to do. In fact, this scam is so common and they've made millions from this scam that the ATO now has a special scam hotline that you can call to check on these things. Yeah, so scary stuff. That does sound really scary. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when it's a call from somebody like the ATO. They'll often hide behind other big name companies like Telstra or Australia Post uh, and a few others that are being used to target people. Uh, There's another one going around uh, at the moment, which is, again, a robocall, but this time it's from DHL, but it's all in Mandarin. Oh, wow. So I got that call too, like last week, and I picked up and then obviously it started and it was in Mandarin. So I knew it was a scam immediately or, you know, I wasn't even going to stay on the phone to listen to what it was and hung up. Maybe they're preying on potentially immigrants who have moved to Australia and it seems like they're casting the net pretty wide, you know, even going for non-English speaking languages as well. Yeah, that does sound like what's happening. I mean, to be scammed for a gift card sounds pretty obvious to me maybe, but maybe not to everyone. We know about the basic scams that are happening, but where are the hackers getting all these details from in the first place? So I had the same questions and it seems like the possibilities are pretty much endless. So to find out more, I spoke with Rob the Hacker. Ooh. <laughs> so uh, this guy works in data security uh, and is a professional hacker. Uh, Rob isn't actually his real name, but he didn't want to use it and wanted to remain anonymous because I'm sure you can imagine once people find out that he's a professional hacker, they're like hitting him up to stalk their girlfriends on Instagram and like hack into crypto wallets and whatnot. <laughs> Doesn't work out well for anyone. <laughs> yes, especially not Rob. 
I started in uh, in cybersecurity a long time before it was really an industry as a hobby at the end of the late 90s. Since then, my career has progressed sort of along with the industry. And I've worked across various different industries, such as like financial tech, cryptocurrency, operating system vendors, and work to secure those from people who might want to attack them, build them up to make them stronger. Uh, and then also worked on the offensive side of things as well. So emulating attackers and trying to break into certain places to make sure that other people can't. And um, then working on those mitigations to actually prevent other people doing so. Sally, you've outdone yourself. You found just the person we need for this. Um, Just go on. Tell me more. (laughs) He's uh, worked with the government and a bunch of massive institutions in Australia and overseas. So... Yeah, I I thought he would be the perfect person to ask about this kind of stuff. And uh, I wanted to start with what are the common security flaws in everyday tech that we use and where scammers and hackers are are getting our personal information, uh, especially in places where we might not even realize it. So what are some like common security flaws in everyday things that we use that we probably don't even realize? One of the biggest things that most people listening probably use is social media. Facebook Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, a lot of people want to say where they work. A lot of people want to like pages that they're associated with, maybe the local pub, for example, or a local football team. And that can help identify where you are. A lot of people have their date of birth visible on their pages, as well as like being connected to certain people. So when you're actually doing reconnaissance on someone, this is one of the things we actually do as a professional (laughs) is do reconnaissance on certain targets to try and gauge a threat profile. And just through social media, it's very easy to say this person lives here down to, you know, maybe a suburb. And then maybe this is their phone number that they're using for like their recovery phone number. You want to get their mother's maiden name possibly. So things like who are they friends with on Facebook and does, does it show their mum? and does their mum have her maiden name listed? by adding all of these things up, like just these little things that people don't think about. And people often think, oh, but everybody has their date of birth on Facebook so that people can wish them a happy birthday. If you really want to recover somebody's account, like you want to say, for example, mess with somebody's uh, essential services, I'm not suggesting you should do this, but this does happen. You can have enough information to impersonate somebody to that degree just from publicly posted information on social media. It's a bit of a tough one because it's where do you draw the line, you know, like especially with LinkedIn. I know that like personally I don't have my full name on on anything, but I'm sure it wouldn't be that hard to to get it just based off the people that I'm friends with and whatnot. But on LinkedIn, for example, like that's a professional tool that you want to keep as up to date as possible and accurate as possible. So yeah, where do you draw the line then if you're like, okay, well, nobody's going to wish me happy birthday this year and I'm not going to like like the local cafe because I don't want someone stealing my identity. Yeah, it's kind of everybody's personal choice. As much as you can, like I can sit here and tell you like all the different things that are going to track you down. Like every case is different. So there's like tidbits of information everywhere. So what you can do is you can try and minimize your digital footprint. So think like, is this really necessary? It also comes around as well when you're when you're signing up for new services. So for example, if you go to a website and uh, they want you to log in with Facebook, 
or sign up yourself, it's probably best not to tie your Facebook account to some random third party website. You can go ahead and you can you can sign up with a totally different uh, account. And this is actually something we've discussed with hacker parents who are trying to educate their kids about creating a digital footprint from a young age. Once you start putting things on the internet, you can't take them away. They'll always be there in, in some way, shape or form. Well, that really changes things hearing that. It makes you question whether social media, you know, if you're not getting value of it, should you even keep your profile? Should you tighten up what you show? And I think even if you don't have all of your details on your profile, like Rob said, it's pretty easy to look at who you're friends with, you know, the area that they live in, if they have that information on there, the people that you're interacting with. Thinking of what he said, you know, once you put something on the internet, like you can never take it off. So it seems like our digital footprint just continues to grow. And as we sign up to more services, we're just sharing our our data even further and wider. But Rob gave me a really cool tactic of coming up with a new identity every time you make a new account on something, which I can imagine you would have fun with. (laughs) (laughs) That I'll end up with a million new identities. (laughs) Just Mark Simpson, <laughs> your <laughs> Mark ultimate Radiger, dream. Mark Bouvier. <laughs> I feel like that is quite a bit of effort every time. So he did give us another trick as well with email when you're signing up for accounts. So let's say that my email is sally at gmail.com and I'm making an account on Spotify. I can use sally plus Spotify at gmail.com as the email instead. And then that way I'll still get all of the usual correspondence to my regular email address, but they have the Sally plus Spotify at gmail.com address. So if they ever have a data breach and my details are leaked, they won't actually have my real email. They'll have the fake alias. That's an interesting idea, actually. And I have heard of that in the past. My question about that is it doesn't look like a standard email address. So what happens if a hacker kind of pieces together uh, that that is just sally at gmail.com, not sally plus Spotify at gmail.com. So basically, it's just another layer of defense. Unfortunately, it's not going to protect you against everything. But let's say that a hacker is using, you know, has all of the details in a spreadsheet, and then they're also trying to match it for other accounts to unlock other passwords and whatnot. You know, if they're just doing like a find in the spreadsheet, they won't find Sally at gmail.com. Yeah, exactly. But say if they were doing a targeted attack on you, then they could probably uh, crack that code pretty easily. But it's just another layer of defense that you can, you know, you can add, especially for those blanket attacks. Okay, so that's just your email and then a plus sign and then a word that you choose at your Gmail, your usual Gmail account? Exactly, yeah. And as far as we know, it only works on Gmail. Uh, so maybe do some searching to see if there's some alternatives for you Hotmail lovers out there. When a breach happens, it's very rare that it's disclosed straight away. Usually there's a, there's a whole period where there is um, an incident response where security people like myself will have to go in, have to evaluate the situation, do the technical stuff. And that can sometimes take a fair while before that's actually hits the news. And while this is going on, sometimes what happens is that you'll have the people who have performed the attack selling the database information, like not even on the darknet. A lot of people think (laughs) this all comes from the darknet. A lot of it is just like straight internet forums. And it's usually pretty cheap for these kinds of databases as well. 
so there is a service that you can check your own email addresses that will tell you if you have been breached and where those breaches are, which is have I been pwned, pwned.com. And if you type your email address into there, that can tell you, you know, were you breached in Equifax, were you breached in Patreon or Twitter? Yeah, I think I've used that before. And, and does it show you like where your information was, was taken from as well? Yeah, it'll show you where it was taken from and it will give you a little bit of information about what type of information was taken as well. Sometimes it'll just be usernames. Sometimes it'll be usernames and passwords. Worst case scenarios that I've seen have been like recruiting companies and things like that where it'll include job titles and, and salary brackets and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, I think when I saw one of them was like MySpace and I was like, no, MySpace, how could you betray me? <laughs> That's all right. Tom's gone. <laughs> where were you, Tom? We, we relied on you. You should have protected us. I needed us. you. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I signed up for MySpace, I was probably 13. I wasn't thinking about the random My Chemical Romance tribute posts I was sharing back then, but... It's all there and it's all ready for, for the taking. Oh, that's so crazy. And um, I love the name of the site that you use to check. Have I been pwned? <laughs> it's so humiliating. Like, yeah. That's so we're going to help you, but we're going to humiliate you first. But it's not only sharing things online on social media. There are many other ways that these hackers can get our information as well. One way that I didn't realize was public Wi-Fi. What about like Wi-Fi as well? I know that, you know, there are easy ways for people to get your information by using something as simple as public Wi-Fi that a lot of us use every day. Yeah, so public Wi-Fi is pretty interesting. Even your home Wi-Fi is not a great deal stronger than public Wi-Fi. The biggest thing about public Wi-Fi is that the key is shared. So if you go to a coffee shop that has a key, then everybody in the coffee shop that's ever been there knows what the key is. And they can use that key to read the information straight off the air and then start to decrypt that data and start reading have you logged into your email? Like if you log into your email accounts and things like that, certain protocols are much easier to break than others. And as an end user, most people don't know what, what these protocols are. So while you're in a public space, it's usually a good idea to use a VPN. So Rob explained what a VPN is to me. I'm certainly no expert, uh, but the basic gist of it is when you use a VPN, the data you transmit and receive goes through an encrypted tunnel of sorts. This data can't be read by anybody outside the VPN due to several security features like firewalls uh, between the client and the host server. The data is also specifically encrypted so that only the computer receiving it can recognize it. Unfortunately, I guess there's a bit of a misconception that VPNs make you entirely anonymous, but that's not true. And there are a lot of VPN providers out there, but you need to be careful when you're choosing one because they're the ones that can see your data and they can see your IP address and, and those details. Uh, so to explain it, Golden Frog had a really good analogy. So a VPN doesn't make you anonymous, but it does greatly increase your privacy and security online. A VPN is similar to the curtains for the windows of your house. The curtains provide privacy for activities happening inside your house, even though your house 
address is public. Well, that's actually really interesting because I was one of the people who thought that VPNs did actually make you anonymous, but here I am wrong again. So thanks for clearing (laughs) that up, Sally. Add another one to the tally. (laughs) You're definitely not alone there. And like Rob said, it's really important to compare your VPN and make sure that you're getting it from a legit source. So... Uh, in the show notes, we'll we'll pop a comparison that Finder has uh, with a bunch of legitimate <laughs> VPN sources. Shameless plug. <laughs> As always. And if you're confused about how VPNs work, you can also get a lot of useful info there as well. But it's not just public Wi-Fi either. Uh, Rob told me that you're not safe at home as well. There's no way you can hide, Mark. Great. <laughs> <laughs> When you're at home, though, with your Wi-Fi as well, it's, it's also really common for friends to come over and say, hey, you know, what's the Wi-Fi password? What happens is you'll have a, uh, say, somebody's laptop and, and they've got a virus or um, you know, malware or something that they've picked up from wherever else, from, from the coffee shop. Once they connect to your Wi-Fi, they're now putting that onto the same network as all of your smart devices, your computers, uh, laptops, smartphones, whatever, with now potential to spread into your network. What you can do to sort of protect yourself against this is in your Wi-Fi router that's usually provided to you from the ISP, there's actually an option in most of them to enable a guest Wi-Fi account. And once you do that, a different Wi-Fi name will appear in the list that you can give out to your guests so that they can come over, they can still use your internet so that they're not sitting there, you know, eating up their 4G. And they're actually segmented away from your network. So you can sort of, you know, um, not to say don't trust your friends, but not everybody knows about these things. So. <laughs> no, I think don't trust your friends is good advice. So basically don't have friends. <laughs> don't invite them over. You don't have any anyway, Mark. It's fine. <laughs> so I'm fine. I'm safe. Low blow. Low but, blow. wow, I did not know that was even possible. I thought that viruses needed to be installed or something like that. I didn't know that they could just be like, caught like an actual virus uh if someone just used your wi-fi yeah it's pretty wild and it's not just using the internet either could be something as old school as uh paying with your card so i know not many people use cash these days but we're constantly you know doing tap and pay which we're constantly told is very secure but have you ever heard of card skimming yes i have sally (laughs) Yeah, well, it's not just a case of shaking the ATM and, and <laughs> making sure nothing falls out. Apparently, there are means of technology that can skim your card from very, very far away that I never realized. A lot of countries don't do things the same way. The EU, the US and Australia are all three totally different systems that all bank together. So I guess with card skimming, one of the first things that you should always do whenever you use an ATM is have a look at where at the slot where you put the card in and like tug on it. Just like pull on it a little bit and make sure it doesn't have something sitting in front of it. They're usually fairly obvious. The good ones are not so common in Australia, but that is one way to, uh, to protect yourself is to make sure that the ATM you're using is a legitimate ATM and it doesn't have some sort of thing added to it to read your card. That was kind of the old way that card skimming sort of happened. But now we all have chip cards, right? We have chip and tap and, and it's pretty common. Like I think everyone has probably tapped their card at least 100,000 times, Sunday shopping sprees. You can actually read that data off the card from a significant distance with the right hardware. 
if you have an Android phone, for example, that is performing the same task as the point of sale system that you would normally tap at a store, you can actually use something like that to read a card through somebody's wallet, through their pants, through their handbag, and in some cases, many meters away. That's pretty scary. And you'll get, in a lot of cases, a lot of the data that you would normally get from reading the mag stripe on the back of the card, the black strip that's normally read when you, when you swipe. Some of the things you can do to, to protect yourself against that is looking at RFID sleeves or RFID shielding wallets. And so what that basically does is it builds a barrier around your card. So you keep your card either in the little slip or you, you just have it in your wallet that has it sort of built in. And don't worry, Mark, not all of these are dorky looking. I know that was your first thought. It was. You know me too well, Sally. <laughs> but yeah, if you're concerned, if you want to find some classy looking ones, hit us up on Instagram at Pocket Money Podcast and uh, we'll send you a link. We'll make sure it's run past the Find a Style team first, of course. Yeah. So once they have your card details, people harvest the data and basically pack it up in batches and they cost just cents per card. So rather than selling individual card details, usually they'll sell them in batches of tens or hundreds or even thousands. So once they have these batches together, they'll send it all overseas. Uh, and the people who are stealing your details aren't the ones who are actually using it. They'll sell it and it gets passed along to much bigger fish Uh, and it's different than say if your card was just picked up off the street or somebody's got your details in Australia and you know you might find a bunch of JB Hi-Fi transactions on your account Uh, unfortunately it goes much bigger than that. I'm amazed at how cheap some of this data is so like only cents per card number is crazy like you would imagine that they could get more money out of that. Experian shared some research around this kind of stuff. So in the States, apparently a social security number can go for a buck. A uh, buck. Your <laughs> a driver's license, uh, around $20. Diplomas can range from 100 to $400. Diplomas, well. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Rob also mentioned that in Australia, Medicare data is just around $30 ready to be purchased on the dark web. I wonder why that is worth that much specifically. Mm, mm. Yeah, I guess it's just all, all part of the puzzle of piecing together somebody's identity. I know, right? There's a market for everything. So the more data they have about you, you know, your name, your medical records the more that they can actually do and the more likely that they'll be to succeed. Other things that tie into financial crime with the whole KYC policies, like the know your customer policies, uh, purchasing of, of SIM cards in fake names. So somebody will have a stolen identity that they've got through whatever method and they'll purchase like maybe a SIM card, maybe they'll get a phone plan or something like that. So the victim who's being frauded They're now getting this letter from their telco saying you owe us this much because you got a new iPhone. The iPhone and a SIM card has been, you know, sold off as a package. The SIM card's been used to register, say, a parcel locker with Australia Post, and it's now being used as a dead drop for, you know, other things that can be bought on the darknet as well. So that's a thing that law enforcement are obviously heavily onto, but it still happens. 
That is pretty crazy that you could be having packages delivered in your name to places that you don't even you're not even aware of. Exactly. And it's not until it's done that you realize that somebody's taken your details. It's not until like maybe you get a call from the telco or whoever being like, oh, hey, and then it might be too late. And then you might think that that call is a scam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I exactly. didn't. <laughs> it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. But I suppose it does place a bit of responsibility on companies to, like Rob was saying, know your customer and like kind of clue into shifty things or weird applications or... Yeah, exactly. And I guess they have a lot of our data, so hopefully they can piece some of those things together. But yeah, seems tricky. <laughs> Okay, so Sally, the lazy millennial deep within me wants to sort of say, okay, so what? You know, you have a few details, uh, you know, you register a SIM card and whatever, but how important is this? How bad can this truly get when it comes to our finances? Uh, You apathetic millennial, you, I should (laughs) have known. Uh, No, it can get pretty serious and I think that's where where most of us should be worried. How, How will this impact our finances in the long run? So I decided to use you as a little bit of a guinea pig in your absence, Mark. Excellent, excellent. (laughs) So let's find out what's the worst that could happen. Okay, so I want to unlock your inner evil genius for a second here. Let's say, so we've spoken a lot about like how to prevent this kind of stuff, what can happen in a bit of a theoretical sense. But let's say that you have my co-host Mark Tarano's Facebook and social media accounts, you know, his password is mum123 <laughs> and you're able to get in. What is like the nightmare scenario? How is his like money and identity at risk? What would you do? If your goal was to wreck someone's life, for example, you're talking about taking out mortgages, you're talking about turning off essential services like electricity not to give anyone ideas, but if, if you can imagine moving house, you just ring up your electricity company and you tell them that you're moving on this date and you need the power turned off. <laughs> Emptying bank accounts, taking out long-term plans with telcos, they're the pretty obvious things, but there's also a lot of subtle things as well. So a lot of people also do things like impersonate other people on Facebook, like the, like the catfishing style thing where, you know, we just saw a case in Melbourne where um, a woman was pretending to be a home and away star to catfish other women for whatever her purposes were. And that did a lot of like psychological damage without actually infiltrating any of their accounts, you know, obtaining nudes from people and, and things like that and having that held over them for blackmail and, and stuff like that. So it really depends like what the person's goal is and in, in what you would do. A lot of high profile CEOs that are worried about this kind of thing. The kind of engagements that they've hired security staff for has been find out where they live, see if you can gain access to their bank accounts, to you know their port- stock portfolios, to their computer systems, persistent access to their email addresses, find out where their kids go to school, find out where who picks their kids up, what time, like all those kinds of things. And that's really scary stuff. Wow. That's uh, that's great, Sally. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Check your inbox. You have I a couple of mortgage applications there. Some new credit cards. <laughs> well, I hope the scammers are happy. Okay. I but just hope you've creepy. learned a lot. 
<laughs> I have. Uh, number My first lesson is not to trust you. <laughs> <laughs> I should have given you a fake name. <laughs> Always good advice. Santos El Helper. That's what I should have said my name was when I, when I joined. El Barto. <laughs> that's crazy, though. Uh, that's really scary stuff. Like, basically, what he's saying is if you get on the wrong side of someone or if you become a target of someone who is pretty knowledgeable in this kind of black market hacking, your life could get turned upside down if you don't have the right sort of safeguards in place. Yeah, there's definitely real life impacts. And I think that before this, I always just thought, oh, you know, if somebody steals my card details, I can just call the the bank and they have like insurances and things in place to cover me and then I'll just have it all returned. But that was kind of as far as I thought about it, but it can go so much bigger than that. Okay, Sally, you've exposed me to a accomplished cybersecurity expert slash hacker. You have shown me that I'm not safe. So is there anything that we can do to protect ourselves online, when shopping, the whole lot? So Delia and Rob literally gave me the exact same advice, which is good. It seems overwhelming, but I think it's worth it. And to be honest, it's not that hard to protect yourself. So number one was using a password safe, uh, like 1Password or LastPass. It's so hard to remember different passwords of everything. And I know a lot of people either use the same password for all of their accounts or a variation of their password. So basically you can use these password managers and they'll create unique passwords for all of the accounts that you're using. They automatically put them in and you don't have to think about it or try and remember a thousand different passwords, which is safe and also convenient. Yeah, I love those. And I think the great thing about those as well is they'll let you know sometimes when an account has been breached. Like, for example, Instagram got hacked uh, recently and it'll tell you, hey, you might want to change your Instagram password. They recently got hacked. So it's like, lets you know as well. Yeah, you don't have to stay on top of it as much. They just do it for you. Uh, the next one is enabling two-factor authentication uh, using an app on your phone rather than SMS. So there's another scam called SIM swapping where people can get your SMS codes to log in or create an account to switch your phone number to a new SIM. But if you have this two-factor authentication linked to an app on your phone, they can't use an SMS that's linked to your number. That's an awesome idea. And then the third one is minimizing your digital footprint. So Rob talked about this quite a lot, just being wary of the information that you're sharing. And I think just try and remember every time you go to share something, is this necessary? Do I need to share this? Do people need to know my birthday and where I work on Facebook? These days, it seems like we overshare and maybe that's a nice call to just tone it back and share when you need to. Yeah, exactly. No one cares anyway, <laughs> and it's probably just going to hurt you in the long run. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other tips go beyond uh, the digital world, I guess. So maybe some more old school tactics, uh, making sure to lock your mailbox. Say if you get a new credit card and it's coming in the mail, like it's pretty easy for them to, to do that uh, and get your details that way, or even just going through your mail and your bills and stuff, getting your details that way. Uh, and then there's everything we spoke about earlier about protecting your Wi-Fi uh, and using RFID wallets so that nobody can skim your card as well. So they're not too labor intensive and they're pretty easy to follow. So, okay, you've 
you've you've brought me down and now you've brought me back up again, Sally. <laughs> so thanks for that. It's just the roller coaster of a regular pocket money <laughs> episode, Mark. You should be used to it by now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sally, look, this really has been an emotional roller coaster for me because it's shown me that you can't be lax on the internet. If you want to use the internet and all the good things that come along with it, you definitely need to spend at least a little bit of your time making sure that you're checking, you know, your name online, you're using a password manager, you're using two-factor authentication, all these sorts of things. Like, they don't take that long to set up, I suppose, but in the long term, if you don't set them up, uh, you really could be setting yourself up for failure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That was beautiful. I've educated you, scared you, tried to steal your identity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, that was a nice touch. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, you're right. You know, there are a few simple things that you can use uh, and strategies that you can use to protect yourself. And yeah, they really could uh, save you in, in the long run. The majority of this work is to protect against these blanket opportunistic attacks. Um, obviously, the more targeted things are a whole different story, but just a little bit of work can maybe protect you against those blanket attacks rather than just having all your all your details in the in the, <laughs> in the proverbial internet street all of today's show notes are at finder.com.au slash podcast uh, we have a bunch of helpful resources there uh, and rob also has his own podcast thug crowd so we'll be sharing a link to that as well if you want to get into more of the tech side of things if you do love slash like the podcast feel free to subscribe to us uh you can follow us on spotify if that is more your bag or itunes and also uh, leave us a review if you feel so inclined it helps us reach more people and uh, get more awesome guests on the show thanks for listening to pocket money from finder head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode the finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips tools and strategies that will help you make better decisions Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening. Get. <laughs> <laughs>